Well, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation. We come back to our look at Revelation here on Sunday. And this morning we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. I have to tell you that two of my favorite services here at Calvary are Good Friday and Easter. Wasn't last Sunday just awesome? It was great to see once again people come who are invited by you. You know, it's sometimes hard to get them here on a regular Sunday, but often when it comes to Good Friday or Easter, we find that people are a little bit more willing to come and check it out. And it was just awesome to see the number of people who came who were invited who didn't know the Lord. I know that was true for our family. Uh, we, we invited people, people came, and then we spent all afternoon with them at our family get-together talking about various things and sharing with uh, them and letting them ask questions one right after another. And so it was just an awesome, awesome time. And I'm reminded about the fact that God cares about those who do not know him. You know, Jesus came into this world to seek and to save those who are lost. And I think that you and I need to be reminded of that. You know, it's easy to shrink back into our own world, our own circle of friends. And for some Christians, I think they make it a point to have as little contact with those who do not know Christ as possible, for one reason or another. But today's text reminds me again that even at the most terrible time in the history of the world, the tribulation period, God is still concerned about the lost, those who do not know him. And we're going to see that today. We're going to see that after the first six seals were opened in chapter 6, and judgment came on upon the world, now we come to chapter 7, and we have been preceded by the question that John asks at the end of chapter 6. If you'll look there with me in verse 17, he said, For the great day of his wrath has come, and he asks a question, And who is able to stand? The rhetorical question could be answered, No one. No one during this period of time is capable of standing in and of themselves. But now we're going to see that God brings about a pause to the judgment, requesting that angels hold back the judgment upon the world to allow individuals to be sealed by God for a very specific purpose, that purpose articulated in the evidence in the second half of chapter 7. It is the sealing of the 144,000. And again, they're sealed with a purpose. Now, you and I can interject in this passage by knowing from the very beginning that you and I have been sealed also. And we're going to talk about what that means this morning and why we should rejoice over that fact. So we begin in verse 1 of chapter 7. And he says, After these things... I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth 
on the sea or on any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. Stop there for a moment. This is a pause in judgment. The angels are holding back the judgment of God. There are some Christians who see that these four angels are truly uh, the four horsemen that were released in chapter 6. But I don't think we can make that conclusion definite simply based upon this. God simply instructs the angels to hold back the judgment. That's what this term that is used here when he says, holding back the four winds of the earth. He is holding back the judgment. You know, God's wrath is being held back right now. The Antichrist emergence to the world scene is being held back right now for the purpose of individuals coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. You realize that, don't you? God's giving everyone a chance. God's giving everyone an opportunity to hear the gospel and to respond, to come to saving faith. You know, the Bible tells us very clearly that God does not rejoice over the death of the wicked. The Bible tells us very clearly that He has done all that He possibly can to allow people to escape the wrath that is to come. And how much farther could He go than sending His only begotten Son into this world for that purpose? But even after the judgment, the wrath of God has begun. He now holds it back one more time for the purpose of sealing a certain group of individuals. Notice with me in verse 3. Saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000, all of the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, there were 12,000. Of Reuben, there were 12,000. Of Gad, there were 12,000. Asher, 12,000. Nephtali, there was 12,000. Manasseh, 12,000. Simeon, 12,000. Levi, you get a pattern here? Levi, 12,000. Ishakar, there was 12,000. Zebulun, 12,000. Joseph, 12,000. Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Throughout the Old Testament, there were times in which God sealed certain individuals in a certain way. The term means it's a symbol to indicate God's protection, God's ownership that they belong to God, individuals that are found in the Old Testament. For example, Noah was selected to be spared from the judgment of the flood, Israel of the plagues of Egypt, Rahab from the invading army of the Israelites in the city of Jericho. In fact, even in Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, individuals are uniquely marked, separating themselves to separate them from those who will be judged. Notice with me in Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, in verse 4. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, 
through the mist of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. You know, we as Christians should be heartbroken over the state of our world. If I could go one step further, in all honesty, I think we have now entered the, the zone of anger, okay? It's a travesty what's happening. The evil is running rampant in our nation. And I think about it each and every day when I'm alone, when I'm in the Word, when I'm praying, when I'm out taking a walk or at the gym. I think about what's going on and how people's lives are being destroyed. How the wisdom of this world has truly entered the arena of insanity in many ways. The individuals marked here at Ezekiel Day, they saw the evil that was running rampant through the city of Jerusalem. They sighed and they cried over it. Sometimes you don't even know what to say, do you? What's happening with people today? How the ideologies of this world are just destroying and devastating the lives of people. It should be heartbreaking to us because the only thing sparing us from that is our relationship with, the God, with our God and our knowledge of Him through His Word to allow us to stand up and to say, enough's enough. And so it was true. But throughout the New Testament, we find various places that this word sealed, the same Greek word is used in different specific applications. For example, in John 6.27... We read that the seal of God was upon Jesus. For John writes, he says, Do not labor for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. For life which the Son of Man will give to you, because the God the Father has set his seal upon him. So Jesus was sealed with this seal. But what does that mean? Because we read further that that same seal, that same Greek word is used of you and I. When Paul writes of this seal, he refers to it as a down payment. Now we all know about down payments, right? If you've ever bought a house, you have to put a down payment down. It shows that you are going to claim that which you have purchased. That you're going to return for it. Paul uses it that way in 2 Corinthians 1, 21-22. Now he who has established us with you in Christ has anointed us and has anointed us is God who has also sealed us and given us, the, here's the answer, the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The word guarantee there is the application of a down payment. Earnest money being placed upon an individual. This sealing is the giving of the Holy Spirit. We know that when Jesus was baptized, what occurred at that moment when he was baptized by John the Baptist? For we find the Trinity all in one place, in all three forms, at one time interacting with one another. We see Jesus being baptized. We see the Holy Spirit like a dove coming upon Jesus. That's when he was sealed. And then we hear the Father say, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The Trinity, all at one time, working hand in hand together. 
and showing and demonstrating that God is one in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When you and I came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, when the new life was given to us, when we were born again, the Spirit of God then took residence in our hearts. And as a result, we now can walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. A new work, a new life has begun in you. To allow us, therefore, to manifest the fruit of the Spirit within our life. And this giving of the Holy Spirit is a seal, a down payment, that one day God is going to come back for His purchased possessions. As Paul, I'm sorry, as Peter said, we were not bought with silver and gold, but by the precious blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God placed in your heart is the guarantee that God will come back to take you to Himself. Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter 1 to emphasize this in greater detail. He says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Remember, Jesus said, and it's hard for us to imagine, but Jesus told us that it would be to our advantage that he goes away. For if he goes away, then he'll send the Spirit to us. Now, the disciples, I'm sure, couldn't figure that in their mind. They couldn't, re- they couldn't rationalize that. Wait, wait a minute, you leaving us is a good thing? Hey, I know that sometimes when people leave our presence, it's a good thing, Right? But that wasn't the case for Jesus. I mean, they were invincible as long as, you know, he was with them, right? They could stand up against any adversity. But now he's departing. But he says it's to your advantage because I'm going to send you the Spirit to reside with you. And he'll never abandon you. I'll never leave you orphaned, Jesus said. For the Spirit of God is with us. Now, the purpose of this seal is not simply to indicate a down payment. But through our life here on this, in this world, the Spirit of God is invaluable. For He comforts us. He is called for the first time a helper to us, a comforter to us. He allows us a peace He imparts to us a peace that surpasses all understanding in times and circumstances that wouldn't warrant it otherwise. He allows us joy. Even when happiness is fleeting, we can still find this joy that cannot be uh, dampened by the circumstances and the places that we find ourselves, the tribulations that we may be experiencing in this world. But he's also working in us. He's changing us from who we were in the old life to who we should be in the new life, bringing us us into the image of Jesus Christ. That's why we are all works in progress. That's what the Spirit of God does within our life. And this seal separates us, and God knows those who are His. I think of what Paul wrote to his young protege, Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are His, 
And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So not only is he our comforter, knowing that we belong to Christ should comfort our hearts, but also the Spirit residing in us, us being sealed by the Spirit, should be a challenge to us. Why? Because when we interact and when we go throughout, you know, throughout our day and when we uh, walk through this world and we are tempted by the temptations of this world, or our flesh desires those things that it desired before we came to Christ, the Holy Spirit does two things. Number one, convicts us. Convicts us. Hey, don't go there. You don't want to go that way. I think of a story of uh, this guy who was on the side of the road and he had a sign. He says, oh, the end is near. The end is near. And the cars were, you know, one car was driving up upon him. He said, oh, there's just another one of those crazy Christians. The end is near. The end is near. I'm going to go even faster. And he flies by the guy holding the, the sign and the signs rattling in the wake of the wind. And then all of a sudden you hear screeching brakes and then you hear Psh! the guy was holding the sign because the road was ending just around the corner because the bridge was out. Sometimes we don't read the signs that are in front of us. Sometimes we do not heed those things. The Holy Spirit convicts us, showing us through God's word that God doesn't want us involved in these things because it's going to harm us. It's going to destroy us. It's going to take us away from that intimate fellowship with Christ as a Christian. And the Holy Spirit wants to, uh, us to avoid that. And he wants us to walk in agreement with him and not grieve him as we go through this world. Notice with me as Paul then went on to say in Ephesians 4.30, he says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We can walk contrary to the Spirit and in so doing we grieve him. Because he wants to take us this way. But free will still reigns within our mortal bodies. That free will must be laid down before the Lord. This is what Paul was referring to when he wrote in Romans chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. When he says, I beseech you therefore my brethren to lay yourself down as a living sacrifice before the Lord. That's what he was indicating. That prayer that Jesus prayed should be our prayer. Not my will be done, but your will be done, Lord. The Spirit of God makes all of this possible in our life. He seals these 144,000 with the same seal that you and I are sealed with today. Well, now you may be asking, well, what's the necessity of this specific sealing of these individuals? I believe that the rapture of the church will occur prior to this seven-year period. And I believe that it is the church, I should say more specifically, the Holy Spirit working through the church that is restraining, as Paul talked about in Thessalonians, restraining the rise of the Antichrist. Remember when the church began 
And they saw the events there in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. Peter gives an explanation of why they are seeing and hearing what they are seeing and hearing. He said, this is the fulfillment of the prophet Joel. For the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all flesh. And these works are being done now in the Holy Spirit to indicate that this time has come. And he ends that prophecy, as Joel does, with the uh, coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the last days. And what he is saying here is that the Holy Spirit is coming in a new economy upon the church. Where in the Old Testament, individuals were anointed with the Spirit. God individually gave the Spirit to individuals throughout the Old Testament. And that was called the anointing. And that anointing could also be removed. That's what happened to King Saul. After David sinned, he prayed and said, Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Because he too was concerned that his sin would require God to move, remove that anointing from him, which God did not do. Now in the New Testament, after the establishment of the New Covenant, each and every person who comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ is sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. Everybody. Not individuals uniquely selected, but everybody. But at the rapture of the church, with the church being removed, that economy of the church working in everybody is also removed at that time. Now, it doesn't mean the Spirit isn't active in the world after that. But since that restraining element has been removed, God then returns to the Old Testament manner of anointing individuals individually, sealing them individually, and in this case, sealing 144,000. Does that make sense? For the purposes that I believe are indicated in verses 9 through 17, which we'll look at in a moment. But now the question comes, who are these 144,000? Now, because of their place of prominence, there are many who want to identify themselves with this. Now, of course, you have those uh, religious organizations, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses, who believed at one time that it was only going to be 144,000 of their members who, ever, who would ever truly enter into heaven. But once their numbers exceeded 144,000, they got in trouble and they had to revise that. The Christian community sees it in one of two ways, basically. There are those who hold to the, to the notion that the 144 symbolically represent the church. Why? Because they believe that the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation period. And this would indicate the church then being sealed by... God, and therefore protected and spared in the midst of his wrath being poured upon the earth. And so they also believe, and allowing them to read the church into this, they also believe that once Israel rejected Jesus, they were no longer really necessary for the continued redemption story. And it's the church that for lack of a better word, replaced the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was God's chosen people, but after the coming of Christ, once the Jewish people as collective community, as a nation, rejected him, God rejected them. 
and God turned his attention to the church, and the church has now become, in their minds, the new spiritual Israel of the New Testament. Now, I find that problematic, because in the book of Acts and in Romans, there are indications that God still sees the Jewish people as his people, and he sees them as the nation of Israel. Plus, there is nowhere in the Bible that the church is called Israel. Nowhere. Now, I understand their thinking. But again, what is the necessity of that opinion or that conclusion is also predicated upon their idea of soteriology, which is a story for another day. But in the eschatology, the study of the last days, they see the church here. But there is no reason exegetically to read the church into it here. After chapter 4, we never see the church on earth again. Never. So to place it here, I think, would be wrong in doing so. It also became more difficult for them to interpret this as the church when Israel became a nation again in 1947. Now what do you do? They feel that that's, you know... That's, it doesn't matter. That's, regardless of that fact, they can still read the church into this. No, I don't believe that's the intention here. I think that the simplest answer is the correct answer. There are some, not many, that also see that these are the martyrs that are found in Revelation chapter 5, but that's inconsistent also. I won't go into that more thoroughly because it's not widely held to anymore. But I don't know when we got to the point where we have to redefine every word that we read and say. Now, notice with me and see if you get a pattern here uh, and see if maybe God's trying to get a point across by repetition In verse 4, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, of all the what? Tribes of Israel. The church is never called the tribes of Israel. Never. Anywhere in Scripture. Of the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000, and so forth. Then we have the various tribes listed for us. Twelve examples. Now, one is missing, the tribe of Dan, and this is one of the point of objections that they will raise. But the, tri- the tribe of Dan fell into idolatry. For it to be left off this list isn't, uh, isn't shocking to me or surprising to me. Others complain that the tribes aren't listed in the proper order. Well, going back in your Bible, you will find that if you count the various places that the tribes are listed, they are listed in 19 different orders. So which order is correct? Why is it so difficult for us to simply see that these are 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel uniquely sealed for God's purposes, right? And when you have a minute, you can read in Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5, these are 144,000 are referred to again, and we'll look at that in more detail when we come to it. 
So I hold to the simplistic answer that these are literally Jewish individuals sealed by God for a very specific purpose. Now you may ask, what is that purpose? Before we get to answer that question, let me say to you that there are a list, uh, there's a group of people given to us in Revelation 13 that operate in contrast to these 144,000. These 144,000 are sealed by God for his purposes. But in Revelation 13, there's a group of people who receive the mark on their forehead or on their hand, giving their allegiance to the Antichrist, condemning themselves to an eternity apart from God by doing so. And John is giving us an example of this contrast to demonstrate that God will still be working even under the weight of his judgment when satanic presence on this earth are prominent. Nothing can hold back the purposes of God. So what is the purpose of the 144,000? Well, I I believe John gives us that beginning in verse 9. Let's look together. And after these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with the white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, uh, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Notice with me. Now remember the question? Remember the question that John left us with in Revelation 6.17? Who is able to stand? He answers that question here in verse 9. When he says very clearly that these individuals are standing before the throne of the Lord. These are the individuals sealed by God, capable of standing even the weight of the horrific wrath of God poured upon this earth. If they can stand sealed at that time, how much more should we be able to stand now in the power of the Spirit of God, even when the waves are crashing in around us? of the ideas, the thinking, the wisdom, the sins of this world, the evil that persists. If they're capable of standing, should we not also be capable of standing today? These individuals selected specifically, I believe, went out throughout all of the world during the tribulation period and this great uh, group of people, this multitude before the throne of God are those who were saved out of the tribulation period, but don't take my word for it. John's going to tell us here in a minute. In verse 11, and all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped saying, God, uh, worship God saying, excuse me, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, 
Who are these arrayed in white robes? And where did they come from? And John said to him, and I said, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. Should there be any question? These individuals that are standing before the throne are individuals that have come out of the great tribulation period. Individuals saved at that time. Even under the weight of God's wrath and judgment, His mercy and grace present itself to people. Not only with the witness of Moses and Elijah there in Jerusalem, which we're going to talk about as we move forward in the book of Revelation, but sending out these 144,000 evangelists, 144,000 Paul the Apostles, 144,000 Billy Grahams, 144 evangelists taking the gospel into all the world. Please answer me the question, how much does God care about lost people? To go this far, to this extent, to reach Him at this time. How much more should our hearts also care as God does for people who do not know them, do not know Him? And verse 15, Therefore they are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore, nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor the heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to a living fountains of water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The tribulation period is not a moment in time where you want to try to experiment in being a Christian. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. We know between the pestilence and the famines and the breakdown of the economy, things are going to be very, very hard amongst the people in the tribulation period. Then think about this. Now the whole world is against you. You have truly become the minority, the remnant amongst those who have signed their allegiance with the Antichrist. How much more difficult is it going to become? How much more difficult is it going to become when you are under a constant threat of persecution? The Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that those who do not accept the mark of the beast on their forehead or on their hand shall suffer execution for refusing it. And Jesus is saying to them, now you can rest. Now you can finally find true peace. Now you can finally find relief from the suffering in which you've endured. And I believe that these 144,000 were sent into the world to reach these people. Now, these individuals seem to have a different role in heaven. They're before the throne serving him day and night, the Bible tells us. But like us, they are accepted by the Lamb. And they answered that question, who is able to stand? The ones sealed by the living God. Number two, we see that they are given white robes showing that they have been redeemed. And that word redeemed in the Greek and that culture meant one who was freed from slavery. Freed from slavery. The slavery that we're freed from is the slavery of Satan and the bondage to sin in and through Jesus Christ. 
We don't have to live the way we once lived. We are free now to live as Christ has called us to live. We are no longer subjected to the authority of the ruler of this world. He is no longer our king who simply mandates that each and every person do what's right in their own eyes. We have now been bought and paid for, again, not by precious stones, by precious metals, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been redeemed, taken out of death, brought into life, taken out of darkness and brought into light. We don't have to live the same way we did prior. We can live as new creations in Christ. Notice this with me too, that they sang joyful songs. In verse 12, as they were before the throne, they were saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That kind of sums it all up, doesn't it? I think of what David wrote in Psalm 27, verses 4 through 6, when he said, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that I will seek Him, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon the rock, and now my head shall be lifted above my enemies all around me. Therefore I will... Uh, offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Truly, truly the focal point of this moment. And they were rewarded. Serving God is not a burden. It is a privilege. They were rewarded. Notice with me in verses 15 through 17, therefore, They are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat for the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When Jesus was amongst his disciples, he made a promise to them. And that promise, in retrospect, in hindsight, from our text this morning, seems so much more significant than maybe it did at the moment that it was spoken. I think of these words from Jesus in John 16, 33. When Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that you may have peace, In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Those words mean so much more to me now, looking backwards from this point in history and realizing that it doesn't matter what trial, trouble, or tribulation that I find myself within, the Lord is with me through it, and he will see me through it, even death itself. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for your rod and your staff guide me and comfort me. For you are my shepherd, he says. You are with me, he says, even at that moment. 
But again, it impressed upon my heart in reading this this week about God's desire to see those who do not know him come to him. I leave you with these verses. Demonstrating the heart of God in this manner. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Or when Timothy, again, I'm sorry, Paul was writing to his uh, protege, Timothy. He said to him, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-6, through 6, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for us all to be testified in due time. If that's the heart of God, it should be our heart today also. Keep inviting people to church. Look for those opportunities to share the gospel with friends and family members who don't know him. You know, we had a discussion on Wednesday night and a really good point was raised. You know, the world and the state that it is in today, it seems as so many have adopted a position of antagonism towards God. That there is no wrong in the sight of those in the world anymore. Everything is okay because society permits it. So how is it possible that they could ever be convicted of their sin? If the world is constantly affirming and reaffirming to them that what they are doing is okay, even though it is so far from what God would have for them. What do we do? Well, God tells us from the very beginning, okay, that there are going to be those who are going to live in antagonism against him. And there are going to be those who are very vocal about it. But we have an ally in this whole process. Again, the one who sealed us is the one that goes before us working in the hearts of the individuals to prepare them to hear the gospel from people like you and me. That's what the Bible calls us. They call, it calls us vessels of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit goes before these individuals and in their hearts where we can't see, he's convicting them of sin of righteousness, and of judgment. Preparing them to hear the gospel. Preparing them to hear the good news. And ultimately allowing those blinders to come off that Satan has placed upon them and allowing them to see Christ for who he actually is. That's why I don't give up. And I'm convinced that the darker this world gets, the brighter the light that you and I shine into it will be. Again, if God's heart is for these people, our hearts should be also. And I don't know about you, but I've come to a place in my personal life where I don't want to see any of my friends or family members suffer an eternity apart from God. 
making our point to pray for them, asking God to work in them. I leave you with these words from Pastor Warren Wordsby, one of my favorite pastors. He says this, and I want you to think about it in closing. He says, sad to say, however, multitudes during that time, that is the tribulation, will also reject the Savior and trust the beast. But are there not people today who prefer Satan to Christ and this world to the world to come? They are just as condemned as the tribulation sinner is who receives the mark of the beast. If you have never trusted the Savior, do so now, he says. If you have trusted him, then share the good news of salvation with others that they might be delivered from the wrath to come. Amen?